Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome into Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. Get your popcorn. I don't know that we've ever seen anything like this. Of course, I'm talking about Saban versus Jimbo. So much to discuss associated with this. We got a lot of different stories in general that are percolating out there, but we got to start right off the top with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher going head-to-head. I got a lot of different angles to discuss on this, Uh, but let's start here for those of you who may have missed all of the flare-up. Last night, Nick Saban came out and said essentially that the reason why Texas A&M had the number one recruiting class in the nation and why Alabama was in second spot was because Texas A&M paid all their players. And Nick Saban said that Alabama did not pay theirs and they were doing it right, so... A&M finishes first, beats Nick Saban uh, in College Station. I was down there without kick for that game. Remarkable night in uh, in College Station. Then A&M goes out and signs the number one recruiting class in the nation. Um, and the discussion, and it's a good one, surrounding this uh, has blown up in a big way. So Saban says Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M signed all, paid all their players. That's why they got so many great recruits. That's why they finished number one overall. Today, at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern, Jimbo Fisher fired back in a scheduled press conference that was called by Texas A&M, the likes of which I've never seen. I'm going to be honest with you. I've covered uh, college football. You guys know I love it. Few people love it more than I do. Uh, In media, certainly. I fought to play it during COVID when everybody else was running in the opposite direction, said it was impossible to play. Uh, And Jimbo came off the top rope on Nick Saban. Said he needed to be slapped, basically, for lying. Uh, Said that Jimbo did that he would never work for him again, and there was a reason why. Some people do it the right way, cited Bobby Bowden. Other people don't. Said he had had opportunities to go back and work with Nick Saban and had turned them down. Uh, Said that there were so many stories out there if people wanted to look into them. It was a very personal, it was an angry, Jimbo Fisher attacking Nick Saban and the comments that Nick Saban had said. He said Saban tried to call him, that he refused to take his phone call, and that he was essentially done with their relationship. Now, a lot of different reactions from so many people out there. Uh, To me, what stood out the most was how intensely personal this was. This was Jimbo Fisher going to war effectively with Nick Saban and probably letting out a lot of resentment and anger that he's bottled up for a long time Because remember, this is a guy who worked for Nick Saban for many years before he ended up a head coach of his own. So both of these guys, I believe, are from West Virginia. Uh, They've known each other for a very long time. Had a lot of respect, at least publicly, for each other. But remember, Jimbo said he was going to kick Nick Saban's ass and then Nick Saban fired back. This was last season. Then A&M probably plays by far the best game of the Jimbo Fisher era in beating Alabama, upsetting the Tide. By the way, fanduel.com slash Clay October 8th 
The line is already up. Alabama is a 16-point favorite in Tuscaloosa over Texas A&M. This felt like what you would see before a big boxing match. When one guy calls out the other one, the other one fires back, and they're all putting on a show to try to get as much interest from the general public as possible. But it felt like more than that. It was intensely personal. These are now two guys that don't particularly like each other. Uh, I was texting with SEC coaches, uh, a lot of whom are fans of OutKick. I have a lot of friends now uh, in the SEC coaching ranks. And they were talking about, oh my goodness, can you imagine what it's going to be like down in Destin for the SEC uh, spring meetings when these coaches are in the rooms together uh, and uh, are in close proximity uh, to one another and have to go face-to-face? The games are one thing, uh, but SEC spring meetings, SEC media days, what is Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, thinking? All of those thoughts. Here were my thoughts in general. I'm going to break down both what Nick Saban is thinking and I believe what Jimbo Fisher is thinking, then I'll tell you what I think. First of all, I don't think Nick Saban did this by accident. Nick Saban is a very, very smart guy. Pretty much everything that he puts out into the public is calculated and intended. Maybe he didn't expect it to blow up in this way. He may not have expected the fire back from Jimbo Fisher, but I think Nick Saban is unhappy with the NIL rules and the fact that effectively, many schools are now paying players to come to their school. And Nick Saban may think that's a poor uh, decision for college football. The cynic in me would say, when you are dominating like Nick Saban is, you don't necessarily want a paradigm shift to occur, right? If you have a great business, you don't want technology to evolve. The internet was not good for Blockbuster. Now, it's a little bit ironic to me about this is Nick Saban has been an incredible evolver as a coach. Remember, you go look at the way Nick Saban won the first national title at Alabama uh, by basically defensive first dominance, by not making mistakes on offense, and compare it to how his offense has changed with Steve Sarkeesian, with Lane Kiffin over the years, where you need to go out and score over 50 points to where you have a really dynamic offensive attack. I mean, just think about the difference between, let's say, Greg McElroy and Jacob Coker, two guys that Nick Saban won national championships with, and compare them with Tua Tagovailoa, with, uh, with everything that happens on the offense now uh, with Bryce Young. Think about what we saw uh, with that evolution in quarterbacks where you would have three straight first-round draft picks from Alabama, not to mention Jalen Hurts, you would have never foreseen or expected for that to occur if you went back and watched Nick Saban offenses in 2007-2008, where the running back dominated and the quarterback was basically a game manager. He's evolved. Surprising to me personally that Nick Saban would not evolve as well when it came to NIL because if Alabama needs to bid to get top players, it seems to me they would be able to do that because the program is hugely successful. But Nick Saban sees himself as the grandfather now of college football and often speaks out on larger college football-related issues and tries to put his stamp on what ends up happening, whether it's how many games 
they play in the SEC, whether it's the rules about how they deal with spread offenses. Nick Saban speaks out on larger, I would say, global issues for college football now, oftentimes far more often than he discusses individual-related issues with the Crimson Tide. So I don't think this was accidental. I don't think that Nick Saban got caught on a live mic and said something that he didn't anticipate turning into a big story. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Where I think he miscalculated is, I don't think he thought that Jimbo Fisher would fire back in the way that he did. And to me, so that's my perspective on Nick Saban. I don't think he regrets anything that he said. I think he felt it. I think he meant it. I don't think that he thought Jimbo Fisher would go straight personal like he did. And this is a function of Jimbo Fisher's anger over what he perceives as an attack on his program relating to paying players. And so I think Jimbo Fisher finally said, I've had enough. I'm not going to allow this allegation that the only reason people come to Texas A&M is because we're paying them. I'm not going to allow that to become standard operating procedure. I'm going to fire back. And he fired back in an intensely personal way. This felt like a feud between two people who knew each other well. You know, sometimes when you have a married couple fight, it gets really uncomfortable. If you're at dinner with them, if you're in a uh, location with them, and they start jabbing at each other, they both know each other so well that it gets intensely personal very quickly. This wasn't gentle ribbing. This wasn't a disagreement on rules. This was Jimbo Fisher basically sundering his longtime relationship with Nick Saban. And you can say that this had been building for some time, uh, and I don't know where it goes from here, I would bet that Greg Sankey has been on the phone or will be on the phone with both men saying, we don't do this. We're not going to air our dirty laundry in public. But what is emblematic of this dispute, Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban, is we're at a major inflection point in college football. And what I mean by a major inflection point in college football is players can now be paid and that is rapidly altering the dynamics of how college football recruiting happens. And so it's not also just that players can be paid effectively. It's that players can be paid and you're also dealing with a new liberalized transfer policy. And let me explain how I think big picture this lines up. Let me start here. There is a difference between paying a player for name, image, and likeness and paying a player to go to a specific school. But it is a very subtle difference that can be easily lawyered up. And let me explain what I mean by that. You can say, hey, you're deciding, let's say, between Alabama, Texas A&M, and Ohio State. Okay? You're making a choice between those three schools. Someone in the player's family, someone who is affiliated with the player, can say, you know what, we really like Alabama, we really like Texas A&M, we really like Ohio State, but we want to be paid what this athlete is worth. What kind of guarantee can you provide to us if we come to your school? Well, they can say, hey, we'll give you a million dollars. And as part of that million dollars, 
That's NIL money. That's name, image, and likeness. We're going to have you show up and do three different athletic autograph signings. We're going to put you on a billboard because we got a new deal with a local car dealership. And we're going to, whatever those things are, right? The problem here is it's not necessarily grounded in economic reality. And the NILs themselves, these collectives, don't necessarily have to be profitable, right? Because it's going to be hard to get back a million dollars for some of these athletes in name, image, and likeness value. So effectively what's happening is NIL collectives are guaranteeing players money if they go to a particular school with no particular guarantee that that money is ever going to be made or paid back. In which case, it's a no-risk proposition for the player because he's selling his NIL rights effectively for signing with a school. So while you're not supposed to be able to pay a player to go to a school, selling NIL rights before a player effectively sets foot on that campus is a default sell for signature situation. And I don't know any way that the NCAA or any other entity can come in and lawyer that in such a way that that is not permissible to occur, right? That's what I mean. Adroit lawyering makes effectively 17 and 18-year-olds who want to go to a particular school able to sell their signature to go to that school. So that's one. Second part of this. Second part of this is we have created a free transfer situation. So not only are you suddenly allowing players to be paid to sign with particular schools, you are also allowing players to decide to go into the transfer portal and sell their signatures again, right? So this is what I think is creating sort of this Wild West universe. Because you have a 17-year-old, let's say you're a five-star, you can sell your NIL rights effectively to a big program as a five-star If you're a quarterback, get several million dollars, sign, go play for a year, and if you dominate, you could go into the transfer portal and resell your rights. So you have basically free agency in high school, and then you have the opportunity to be a free agent after your freshman or sophomore year all over again, and you can go to a brand new school and never have to sit out. So it's not only recruits getting paid, it's that if you go to a school and you are successful, you can get paid after that. Now, the combination of the two has effectively ended forever the fig leaf that major college athletics is anything other than a professional sport. In fact, what you are starting to see is some guys are going to make more money in college athletics than they are actually as professionals. That is, used as an example, what's going on in Kentucky basketball right now. They've got a big player in Oscar Tishambway who is going to make more money playing basketball next year for Kentucky than he would if he were in the NBA. And we've never seen anything like this before. And so if you are a really successful coach like Nick Saban under the existing formula, 
you don't necessarily like the paradigm shift that is in play. Now, I'm a capitalist. So I think people should be able to make as much money as they possibly can. But what we're seeing right now in this Wild West era is it's hard to peg value on players. Because the way that I would think about this, take it outside of college athletics. Effectively, a 17-year-old recruit is like a company that is raising venture capital money. And when you are bidding big dollars on 17-year-olds, a lot of those 17-year-olds are going to bust and they're not going to pan out. And what you're seeing happen in the larger stock market right now is a lot of these venture capital funded, they call them unicorns, with billion-dollar valuations, you're finding out don't actually have the revenue to justify the valuations that they have gotten. And so the free market is selling back and it's becoming harder to raise money because those companies were overvalued in a low interest rate environment. So from an interesting perspective, what we don't have yet in college athletics is we don't have the companies that are going bankrupt. What is going to happen almost assuredly is some young guys are going to get millions of dollars to go to a school. And then they're going to get on campus and they're going to test positive for drugs and they're going to get kicked out of school. Or they're going to get arrested for some violation and they're going to get kicked out of school. Or they're going to go to campus and just not be very good. Some five stars don't pan out at all. And when that happens, there's going to be an adjustment in the marketplace. Because some of these rich guys are going to say, wait a minute, I just gave a million dollars for a dude who didn't even last a year on a college campus. I'm not going to give a million dollars to the next guy who's looking for it. That's how markets work. So we really don't know what the overall valuation of a top player is until we start to see how these early NIL deals pan out. Now, some of these young companies are going to turn into the college football equivalent of Amazon, right? Some of these young kids. Cam Newton cost $180,000 allegedly to go to Auburn. If that were true, $180,000 is the greatest buy in the history of the state of Alabama. Because Auburn went 14-0 and and won a national championship with Cam Newton. And if they didn't have him, that was probably an 8-5 and team. So while you're going to have some guys who sell for too much, you're going to have some guys who sell for too little. And figuring out what the right market value is for top college athletes is going to be interesting. And that is what we are seeing create so much of a conflict right now. There are a lot of coaches out there that say, man, the reason why I went to college football was so I wouldn't have to deal with all the egos that come from pro athletics. Well, when you've got players in your locker room making millions of dollars and you've got other players making zero, how do you reconcile that? More difficult question. What happens if a player has a multi-million dollar NIL and he gets beaten out by the guy who doesn't have the multi-million dollar NIL. These are not questions that college coaches have had to grapple with like they have in pro sports for a long time. So look, 
this is going to be a really difficult scenario to figure out because I don't know, given the NCAA's losses in the Supreme Court, how the NCAA ever implements a rule without violating antitrust law going forward. And similarly, I don't necessarily know how conferences do either. And in the absence of rules or regulation, you will have an unregulated free market. And so we have gone from an intensely regulated, bureaucratic, government-style system to a pure free market. Effectively, this is like what happened in Russia when they gave up communism and suddenly shifted to capitalism overnight. We are going from a socialistic style of college athletics to an unfettered capitalism market with almost no middle ground. And so that disconnect, that discombobulation effect is creating a lot of tension. And that tension, I believe, is evoked from the eruptions that we saw from Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher over this name, image, and likeness business. How does it get reconciled? I don't know that you can put the genie back into the bottle. Unless, and this is the question I've been asking for a while, we end up with Title IX issues. Because note what is happening here. Every athlete isn't getting paid. In fact, most athletes aren't getting paid at all. It's really only men's football and men's basketball players who have a substantial value. Now, some individual female athletes who have strong social media profiles are profiting very well, but their sport is secondary to why they make the profit, right? It's because they're good-looking, they're able to use their social media profiles well. The value that college football and men's basketball players bring is because of their athletic talent. Many of the women that are making big money on social right now are not necessarily doing it because of their particular sport talent. They're doing it because they're sophisticated in growing a brand and an audience through their social media followings, which they now can monetize. So what happens if 98% of the money which seems likely, for name, image, and likeness is going to a relatively small pinprick of athletes, is their Title IX issue afoot because suddenly you're having these male athletes making a ton of money under the rubric of college athletics while women, comparatively, are not making much. And let me explain what I mean by that. Scholarships are equal, right? You have the same number of scholarships for men and women which is pegged to the overall enrollment numbers of universities. So the number of full scholarship athletes, both male and female, have to be equal. And they all have to get uh, whatever stipends are given, whatever cost of attendance dollars are given. All that's still given equally to scholarship athletes. Well, almost all athletic department money comes from football and men's basketball. Every other sport loses money. How does all of this work going forward with NIL? I don't know. And how do we deal with a college marketplace that is paying players more than they might make in some cases in the NFL, in the NBA? And I don't know the answer to that because we've never seen the likes of this before where if you're a really good college player but you don't necessarily have a great guaranteed pro future, 
instead of going pro, you might make more money to stay and play for four or five years in college than you would to go pro. We've never seen a situation like this before. So all of that tension is creating a massive firestorm behind the scenes, below the surface, so to speak. And what you just saw in that eruption from Nick Saban and the responsive eruption from Jimbo Fisher was what is occurring behind the scenes suddenly explode into the public arena. By the way, I don't even know that this is bad in any way for college athletics. The amount of interest that is now uh, been created in Texas A&M and Alabama and in the SEC in general, controversy's good, man. I got to tell you, as someone who is in media, as long as you aren't facing jail time, there is no such thing as bad publicity. It just doesn't exist. So I think uh, this is uh, going to be a, a handful. We're covering it aggressively at OutKick. I would encourage you to go check out OutKick.com if you haven't already uh, to see uh, the absolute latest surrounding Nick Saban against Jimbo Fisher. Uh, but it's the second most explosive press conference I've ever seen. Uh, the only other one that was wilder and more entertaining uh, was what went on when Bobby Petrino had his motorcycle accident and showed up in his neck brace. But this is up there. And obviously you had John Chaney going against John Calipari. All of those uh, were in some way a, uh, a really kind of uh, fascinating story to be following. Hey, Clay Travis here. We'll be right back. But first, here's a word. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right. Uh, wanted to talk about this. Uh, Joe Kenzie's done a good job covering this. A skateboarder named, I'm reading right now from our article at OutKick, Taylor Silverman uh, decided that she was really frustrated because she came in second in a Red Bull Cornerstone skateboarding event to a man who is identifying now as a woman, to a transgender woman. And she called out, she said, I'm a female athlete. I've been skateboarding for 11 years and competing for several years. I've been in three different contests with trans women, two of which I placed second. At the last contest series I did for Red Bull, I placed second. This is a face this is a Twitter message. Uh, sorry, Instagram post. First place $5,000, second place $2750. Uh, the girl I deserve to place first be acknowledged for my win and get paid. I reached out to Red Bull and was ignored. I'm sick of being bullied into silence. And then this girl, and I give her credit for calling this out because, again, her name is Taylor Silverman. This girl is now being attacked by the woke community because she had the audacity to say women should compete against women and men should compete against men. And what I would say is this is just another example of the Leah Thomas controversy. These issues are not going away. What the wokes try to tell you 
is that this transgender sports issue is made up. It's not a real issue. I'm telling you the exact opposite. Men are bigger, stronger, and faster than women. Virtually every sport that you can think of, there are going to be men who decide to identify as women and begin to dominate. And so the question you are going to have to decide on is, do you believe that men should be able to identify as women and compete against them? Or do you believe in a separation of men's and women's sports? I believe in a separation of men's and women's sports. I'm making that choice. You are going to have to make that choice yourself. Because if men are allowed to compete in women's sports, eventually no women will win. Because men, even those who identify as women, are bigger, stronger, and faster than women. And we are creating an artificial competition if we allow men who identify as women to be competing against uh, women. I've made my choice. A lot of the woke sports community out there won't make their choice. But I credit Taylor Silverman for standing up against what I believe is a competitive injustice. Uh, Warriors dominated the Mavs last night. I just want to say, first of all, congrats to the Warriors on winning their game. And more importantly, thank you to Steve Kerr for coaching with his mask down around his chin for the entirety of that game last night. You know, I didn't know how we were going to beat COVID, but when I saw Steve Kerr bravely wearing his mask on his chin so that he could scream to everybody on the court while still giving the cultural signpost out there of I'm a super lib by having the mask wrapped around his ears. What a hero this guy is. What an incredibly brave man Steve Kerr is to be wearing his mask around his chin and thereby ensuring that COVID ended with him. He's probably gotten 48 COVID shots already. He's had COVID like nine times, including last week. And boy, when he wore his uh, mask around his chin, it was a brave moment. Credit to Steve Kerr for protecting everybody in the Bay Area from being able to get COVID. Uh, speaking of, uh, of bravery, NBC News has finally gotten around to covering the Hunter Biden laptop. And they wrote an article early this morning, I shared it, uh, about Hunter Biden making $11 million from Ukraine and China while his dad was vice president. This is crack addict Hunter Biden being paid $11 million. Why do you think Ukraine and China were willing to pay Hunter Biden, crack addict, $11 million over the space of five years? This is $11 million that we know about based on Hunter's own laptops and the data that he stored there. Uh, the answer is pretty simple because they wanted to get access to Joe Biden. And there's no telling how much compromising information Hunter Biden has provided to Ukraine and Chinese companies. Uh, and what exactly are they getting for their $11 million? It's not like Hunter Biden is some incredibly brilliant business person. He ain't Warren Buffett. He's not David Boys. They are paying Hunter Biden to get close to Joe Biden and they want to get their $11 million plus out of Hunter Biden. And how are they going to get that? Preferential treatment, uh, 
all different sorts of access to get things that they want through from a business perspective. It's not complicated, okay? This is the world that Joe Biden is involved in, and suddenly the media is finally willing to recognize what many of us have been saying for the past 18 months, which is this was a huge cover-up. Speaking of a huge cover-up, what percentage of Twitter accounts are total bots? What percentage are real people and what percentage are totally artificial? Elon Musk is starting to shine a light on this. Twitter is claiming 95% of its accounts are real. Do you believe that? I don't. I don't know what percentage of Twitter accounts are real, but if I own Twitter right now, I'm starting to wonder whether Elon Musk is going to expose Twitter as being the Enron of social media. That is, not that much substance behind all the fluff. Now, I see all the time bot accounts try to magnify issues. That's why I've always said, look, you can agree or disagree with me, but every single word that I put out there is directly connected to my actual name. How many people are using their actual names versus how many people have tons of different accounts versus how many bot farms are there out there trying to manipulate public opinion? Twitter is a rigged game But what if it's a rigged game that hardly any real people are playing? It's a question that Elon Musk is bringing to the forefront right now. Uh, This Pennsylvania Senate race, by the way, you talk about a blockbuster Pennsylvania Senate race. Let me hit the absolute latest for you. Uh, There are over 95% of the uh, votes are in right now. And Dr. Oz, let's see the absolute latest. Dr. Oz right now has right at a 1,200 vote lead. Uh, He is up 400. I'm reading right now from the official uh, 31.2% to 31.1%. And both of these campaigns believe that they are going to end up winning. So Dr. Oz, 1,200 vote lead. There's certainly going to be a recount. But the question is, how many votes are there outstanding? Again, uh, under, I believe, 1,200 vote lead for Dr. Oz. He's got 417,458 votes as I sit here speaking to you right now. Dave McCormick, 416,261. If Dr. Oz holds on to this lead, there is no doubt that Donald Trump will have won him this campaign. Because if Donald Trump had endorsed Dave McCormick, this thing wouldn't have even been close. It's Trump potentially as kingmaker if Dr. Oz ends up holding on going forward. Um, Finally, you know things are a disaster with Joe Biden when we can't even get baby formula on the shelves. We knew Joe Biden was not going to do a good job as President of the United States. But did any of you actually think that he would do such a poor job that parents with babies would not be able to feed those babies? Now, Joe Biden now is 
putting Defense Department authorization to try to increase the overall baby formula supply out there, which is interesting because last week he told us there was no baby formula supply issue. And now he's recognizing, oh, wait a minute, there is a huge baby fam, uh, baby formula supply issue. It's just emblematic to me. Earlier today on Clay and Buck, we had a caller from Norman, Oklahoma, who called in. And he said, look, I want you guys to know how to make baby formula yourselves. Would you have ever believed that someone would call in to the biggest radio show in the country in the year 2022 to give instructions to parents on how they can make their own baby formula because there isn't enough baby formula otherwise available to feed babies in this country? I frankly would have never believed it. Even as bad as I thought Joe Biden would be as president, he's been worse. He's the worst president in any of our lives. I hope things get better but I have no confidence that is going to happen. My name is Clay Travis. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. I hope all of you have fantastic Thursdays. Uh, Go listen to Clay and Buck. Fun conversation today. I want to thank the band Lit. We have a new theme song that's going to debut on Monday, My Own Worst Enemy. This has been Outkick the Show. As always, DBAP, unless you need to SBAP.